Giannis, 15. Respect all, fear none. Into the upper deck. Intensity is not a perfume. Hello, Utah Street! Five, four, three, two, one. From inside the warehouse at Oriole Park at Camden Yards, it is the Masson All Access Podcast. Paul Mancano and Brendan Mortensen here. Brendan, it has been a long day moving all of this equipment from our Masson newsroom down to the Masson web studio, but uh, quite well worth it. And it helps to know at the end of the day, there will be a softball game played. Right. Uh, as we have joined another fall league. I think what the podcast has really been missing the last few weeks is the softball content. Is the content about the softball. I think that is what the people are here for. Yeah, and, and, and tonight is an important game because tonight is where you establish yourself, I think, on the team. You know, if you, if you have a good game at the plate tonight, you're going to find yourself in the middle of the lineup for the foreseeable future. If you have a good performance in the field, you might find yourself at short or third. You know, so it's, I think, claiming a position defensively and getting a hit in your first at-bat are huge so that people know, okay, this this guy can play. Right. You know, my folly the last time was striking out my first at-bat. Well, you can't do that. And then it it, kind of went downhill from there. And even though my production improved, it took a lot for me to overcome a bad first impression. Yeah, it's a, it's a lot of pressure. It is. In game one, you've got to, you've got to step up. You have to establish yourself on the team and say, you know what? I can I can be a hitter somewhere. Yeah, I'm jogging out there to probably to second base immediately. That's, yes. where, that's where I feel most most comfortable there. Yeah, right we now. will be arriving four hours early for warmups. Yes, set the tone. You got your cleats. I got to buy cleats. Do you, are we we're going baseball pants? That's the difficult question. I don't know. See, it's cold enough. We have to wear pants. We have to wear sweatpants. And if we're going to be wearing pants, we might as eh. well be wearing pants we can slide in. That's my thinking. Eh, that's a future problem. It's pretty nice today. It is nice. It is nice. I don't it's know a if it's a gorgeous day here at Oriel Park at Camden Yards. It is, and and Nicole Sherry is working on the field as always, tirelessly, making sure that this thing is going to be beautiful. Come, it's beautiful right now, but that it, it will be beautiful. Come, when is the Orioles home opener next year? April fourth or something like that. I don't know. All that right. sounds like something I should know. Yeah, we're months away from that. Right now, we're in the middle of playoffs, and I know what you're thinking. It's October nineteenth. What in the world could these guys be talking about as it relates to Orioles baseball? But we're going to find some things. Okay, we have arbitration projections to discuss for the Orioles. We have gold glove candidacy for the Orioles. And then we're going to talk about the Orioles outfield going forward because that is perhaps the Orioles deepest position group. And uh, it's going to be the more entertaining of the debates. You know, the, the starting pitching might not be as fun of a debate to have because you had some guys that underperformed last year. Outfield is going to be fun because you have so many great candidates there and It's just finding time and finding innings for all these guys. Right. The outfield isn't really a place that we're going to talk about much in free agency when we're talking about guys that the Orioles could potentially sign. Yeah, (laughs) in free agency. I I don't think we'll be talking about that really at all because there is so much internal competition, especially if the Orioles decide to bring back Anthony Santander. He's in that mix as well. So the offseat... The offseason outfield conversation is is kind of more of just how is that competition going to shake out rather than who else are they going to bring in? Yeah, well, everything in this podcast is going to have kind of an outfield theme. So let's start with the fall instructional 
uh, camp for the Orioles down in Sarasota because it is noteworthy. They added, the roster is absolutely littered with uh, top prospects in the Orioles system and all six draftees from the 2020 draft, including the guy at the top, Heston Kerstad. That was a great, great thing to see his name at the top of that list because this is a guy that has not played for the Orioles in any kind of organized fashion since he was drafted number two overall back in 2020. And not only is he back in the cage and taking swings, but we'll see exactly what the level of his you know, participation will be in here, but he's included on the roster, which means the Orioles have him as part of their plans for this fall instructional camp. Right. It was really hard to project what Heston Kerstad was going to do this year, next year, if anything, just because obviously, first and foremost, the concern was his health and not even really getting him back to baseball shape, just making sure he was okay, period. Michael Elias said that he hoped that Kerstad next year could start at one of their affiliates, and we weren't really sure where he was on his track of recovery. Yeah. But the fact that he is on this roster for the fall instructional is huge for Heston Kerstad and is a pretty good indication of the fact that he might be on an affiliate next year, which yeah. would be really exciting. The The information about him has been slow and sparse because of the nature of his condition, the, the being the heart condition. So we've only seen videos of him that he posted swinging in the batting cage. Uh, that's really the extent of what we've gotten in terms of our understanding of where he is. And we've heard Michael Elias be positive, but optimistic when talking about him. So it's, it's been difficult to judge exactly where he is. It's been a lot of, we hope he's going to do this. It's a lot of, not a lot of, we expect him or we plan for him to do this. It's just, we are taking this literally day by day. So I don't want to go. I know Michael Elias isn't going too far down the road and I don't want to do that as well. Uh, I just want to take this as a positive step forward, and we'll see where it goes because every hurdle that he's going to have to clear to get back onto the field is is going to be a significant one. Right, and like you said, the information about Kerstad and how he was doing health-wise has been pretty scarce. We don't know a ton about how he's doing, but the fact that he is at this fall instructional camp, hopefully we will get to see more of him. We will hear more about him. Maybe we'll hear directly from him about how he's doing, but it, certainly a step in the right direction. And it's not a camp that we will be there for that is open to the media. So we, it's not like a spring training camp, but maybe it sets the ground for future participation, right. like I said. All right, uh, let's talk about arbitration because the Orioles currently have seven guys who are arbitration eligible. Now, they don't have to make a decision or tender any offers to these guys until December 1st, which weirdly enough is the same day that the co current collective bargaining agreement expires. I don't know how that's going to work out. If that agreement expires, they don't have a new one in place and they have to decide whether they're tendering contracts to these guys, whether they put that on hold, I have no idea how they're going to handle this. So we're just going to take this as they're, we're proceeding through the offseason as usual. Yeah, because we're, we can't make any kind of conjecture as to where baseball will be on December 1st. If we don't assume that this is going to be a somewhat normal offseason, everything would be impossible to project yes. between arbitration estimates to free agency guesses. Everything would be completely just out of whack. Yeah. So we kind of have to assume that it's going to be business as usual. It might not be, but 
We'll, we'll go on that assumption. All of our conversations in the offseason until December 1st will be undercut with the knowledge that this all may be thrown to the wind and we may have be playing with different rules and different contracts and it may all not matter. So let's just assume that the current rules are let's in place. Let's assume that things matter. Yes, exactly. So let's talk about the seven guys that the are arbitration eligible for the Orioles and starting with the no-brainer category because I think there's only one of these seven guys that fits into the no-brainer. You're going to tender him and you're going to pretty much come to an agreement around what he will be asking. Now, these these numbers that we're going to use are per MLBTradeRumors.com. They are not definite. They are not. They're just estimates. The, you know, remember a couple of years ago, people were estimating Jonathan VR was going to get $10 million. He ended up settling for like $8.4 million after he was traded uh, to the Marlins, I believe. Um, so, you know, all of these numbers just take and understand that their estimates, they may be too high, they may be too low, whatever. But of the seven guys, to me, John Means is at $3.1 million, the biggest no-brainer you come to an agreement with John Means on this. Oh, absolutely. I, I don't think you could get a starting pitcher on the free agent market at $10 million a year that gives you the production that John Means would be giving you at the estimated 3.1. He is at the top of the rotation for three point one million, there is no way they are not giving him that. Yeah, I think that that just makes too much sense. And yeah. whether it whether they go to arbitration or not, they're not non tendering John Means. No. I, I I don't think that there's there's really a scenario where that happens. No, I think that number could be five, six, seven million, and it yeah. would still be well worth. It'd be worth it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And the reason he's getting less is not because of his production, but because he's earlier in the arbitration process. Right. Guy, a guy who is later in the arbitration process. Two guys are Trey Mancini and Anthony Santander. Both these guys are scheduled to get raises for next year. Trey Mancini projected for seven point nine million dollars, according to MLB trade rumors, and Anthony Santander at three point seven million. The Orioles haven't handed out seven more than $7 million to a player via arbitration eligibility or not. They haven't signed a free agent for $7 million a year or more since Manny Machado, Jonathan Scope days. That was the last time they paid this much to an arbitration eligible player. So Mancini at 7.9, not too shocking because he made 4.75 last year, but that's a pretty pricey first baseman to have on your roster considering you already have a young 24, 25-year-old in Ryan Mountcastle. Right. It's it's a pricey first baseman to have on your roster. It is an even pricier backup first baseman DH type to have on your roster. I think for next season, Trey Mancini's role makes sense because you probably won't bring in a DH or a backup first baseman that is a, a, a better player than Trey Mancini or B, a better value than the $7.9 million that he is estimated to get in arbitration. I think the Trey Mancini conversation about what you do with him down the line is probably for another podcast. But I think for right now, if you are only looking at the 2022 season, the $7.9 million price tag is expensive, but I think it makes sense to bring Trey Mancini back on it. Yeah, I, I don't think this is a non-tender and and anytime you're talking about Mike Elias and big raises in arbitration guys enter non-tender categories however what Trey has given you both on and off the field over the past several years 
the organizational investment that they have in him at this point, I think it's likely that they do tender him at 7.9. And I'd put Santander in the same category at 3.7. And that is a little expensive for a, a guy, an outfielder, where, we're, like we're going to say, deepest position group and didn't really give you a whole lot, even though he was fighting through injuries last year. Only had, what, a .1 war, according to baseball reference. I think both these guys get tendered contracts. They may head to arbitration, and the Orioles may try to lower that number of what they're projected, but I don't, at this point, expect the Orioles to non-tender either Trey Mancini or Anthony Santander. Yeah, Anthony Santander at $3.7 million is, again, probably a little expensive for a player who is essentially replacement value, according to his war. I think he had, what, a 0.1 war this year? Yeah. But Anthony Santander is probably going to be your starting right fielder until some of the prospects come up in the middle of the year, in which case he might get his spot taken away midway through the season. But I don't think it's worth necessarily non-tendering Anthony Santander. I don't think that you would get a cheaper, better corner outfielder in free agency. I think it's possible because Anthony Santander, again, was not all that great in 2021, and I don't think either of us see him as a long-term answer in the corner outfield, but he's still young enough where I think at a $3.7 million price tag, it's worth seeing if he can get back to what he flashed in 2020 this year. And and give you something in a trade. Right. I, I think it's less about would you pay $3.7 million to a free agent and more would you rather not pay $3.7 million and see more of Ryan McKenna and Kyle Stowers to start next year. Which is a valid argument. Yeah. You, you can make a legitimate case that you would rather not pay that $3.7 million, put that, put that towards a middle infielder or a catcher or a starting pitcher, and then just start Ryan McKenna in right field, who is, yes, struggled with the bat, but is already an elite defender. Well, the comparison here that you can make is with Jose Iglesias last year. The Orioles picked up his $3.5 million option knowing full well that they wanted to trade him, but also they were they had to be okay with the idea that they couldn't trade him. You don't pick up that option with the, you know, you have to be able to accept the risk that you cannot trade him. And I think that Santander is in the same category. I think the Orioles are going to probably pay his arbitration money, accept the risk that, hey, this he, he may not get us anything in a trade. We may not be able to move him, but it's worth $3.7 million to try to, get something back in a trade. Yeah, the only issue there is that I think Anthony Santander probably has less of a chance of getting traded than Jose Iglesias did because Iglesias was a solid defender at shortstop and was decent enough with the bat. Anthony Santander was a gold glove candidate in 2020, but was pretty mediocre defensively in 2021. And the bat was not what you wanted to see either. So I don't really know if any team is going to be banging down the door to try to trade for Anthony Santander. Yeah. So do you pick up that $3.7 million option knowing that he is probably not going to get traded? At least in the short term. At at least this offseason. Because you got to wait. You can probably try to trade him this offseason, but I think you got to wait to see if he can come to spring training healthy and recapture his 2020 form, because then that's a more tradable player than the one that they have right now. Uh, And then, so we've talked about the top three guys. Then there are a bunch of guys that we think are on the lower end of the likelihood that they will get tendered a contract. Three relievers, 
Jorge Lopez, Paul Fry, Tanner Scott. 1.5 million projected, 1.1 and 1 million respectively. To me, these these three guys are worth tendering deals to just because they are cheap enough that we we started to see Jorge Lopez in the bullpen last year. He looked good enough. Paul Fry obviously started the season very well, finished the season in AAA, and Tanner Scott showed flashes at times. To me, if one of those guys or two of those guys blossoms into a legitimate reliever in 2022, that can get you something in a trade. So if you combine all three of those, and, and that's you know $3.6 million for Lopez, Fry, and Scott, $3.6 million, it's the same conversation as Anthony Santander. It's just diversifying your assets. It's you're paying $3.6 million to try to get something, a prospect in a trade. Yeah, I know Tanner Scott and Paul Fry had really bad second halves of the 2021 season, but you're paying them just over a million dollars, and they have still flashed enough for you over the last few years where I think tendering both of those guys contracts would be worth it. Jorge Lopez at 1.5. I still think he's worth that. I do too. I think at the very least he's a swing man, but I think at best Jorge Lopez looks like he has good enough stuff to be like a seventh inning bullpen arm. I mean, Brandon Hyde and Mike Elias have both said that they were impressed with his stuff. He started coming out of the bullpen on August 22nd. He gave up just two earned runs in over eight innings of work and struck out 10. It's a really small sample size for Jorge Lopez out of the bullpen, but that was always his thing as a starter too. I mean, Jorge Lopez was pretty good the first time through a lineup and then once it got to that second and third time, he kind of fell apart. Right. So if you're just putting Jorge Lopez in a situation where he needs to get you three, four, five outs out of the bullpen, he's looked at least in that small sample size like he's more than capable of doing that because the stuff is good enough. Yeah, if you were to say $1.5 million for Jorge Lopez, the starter, I'd probably say no. Right. But $1.5 million for Jorge Lopez, the reliever, to me, that's, that's worth it. Uh, the the one of the three of these guys that I mentioned, I think could be non-tender is, is Paul Fry. I would agree. Be, uh, 1.1 million is his projected amount because ended the season at AAA. I mean, as, as good as he was the first half of 2021, that's how much he struggled in the second half. I still think he's worth the 1.1 million, but he is older than Tanner Scott and he doesn't have the stuff that Tanner Scott has. So I think if you're picking between one of those two, I would rather tender a contract to Tanner Scott, but I think Paul Fry is still cheap enough where the previous years of production and the first half of 2021 where he was one of the best left-handed relievers in the American League, I think that's enough to give him 1.1 million. That's not that's not a big contract for a reliever. Yeah, so we've talked about the everybody on the higher end of likely to get tendered. Two guys I don't think will get tendered contracts, Pedro Severino and Pat Vileka. Severino projected to make $3.1 million in arbitration, Pat Vileka $1.3. So Pedro Severino, he has had a fun ride with the Orioles at times uh, since they claimed him off waivers a couple years ago from the Nats. He has filled in as your everyday pretty much catcher for the past couple years, but you have a guy named Adley Rutschman coming up, and to me, you can get a fine backup catcher on the free agent market for a lot less than the $3.1 million he's projected to get. Right. We are assuming that uh, unless there's an injury or anything like that, Adley Rutschman is going to be your starting catcher at some point halfway through the season somewhere. We don't know exactly what day it will be. 
But if everything goes according to plan with his development in AAA and he continues to look good there and, and doesn't get injured, like I said, he's going to be the guy. So you are essentially looking for a valuable catcher on the free agent market that can be a good backup to Hadley Rutschman and then is going to get you through the first however many games, first half of the season, whatever it is, until Adley becomes the guy. And I think you can find anybody on the, the free agent catching market that is probably going to be a better value because that's all you need from them. You yeah. don't need them to be an everyday for the entire year catcher. You only need a good backup for half the year and somebody to get you through the first half of the season. And I don't think that's going to cost you over $3 million that Pedro no. Severino would. No, and, and we'll talk about on later podcasts who they could sign as a backup catcher. But to me... All of the guys that we're going to talk about, not all of them, but a lot of them are going to cost less than $3.1 million and might do a better job yeah. than Pedro Severino. And and the other guy, Pat Valleca, $1.3 million. I mean, as good as he was in 2020, he had a really down year in 2021. Was worth negative 1.9 war, according to baseball reference. He's 29 years old. Doesn't play any, even though he's versatile, doesn't play any defensive position at an above-average level. And it's a similar conversation. If you want to go sign somebody, you can get somebody that does the job better, and he might even be cheaper than 1.3. Right. And the other thing with Pat Vileka, too, you just can't really justify giving him playing time over Ramon Arias, Jemai Jones, Jorge Mateo, any of those guys in the middle infield. I think Brandon Hyde and Orioles fans as well would rather those three guys get playing time over Pat Vileka so not only is he probably not worth the $1.3 million that he is estimated to get in arbitration, it's probably not worth giving him a spot somewhere because you are taking away valuable reps from younger guys with a lot more potential. Exactly. So those are the seven guys. I think of those seven, they almost definitely non-tender Severino and Valeca with a chance that they non-tender Paul Fry and an outside chance that they non-tender... I don't know, Jorge Lopez, Tanner Scott, or even Anthony Santander. Yeah, I think the lock, there's one lock and it's John Means. Yeah. I think the almost a lock is Trey Mancini. And then I would kind of make another category with Anthony Santander, Jorge Lopez, and Tanner Scott as the probably tender a contract, but it's a little more iffy than somebody like Trey Mancini. And then Paul Fry having his own category of like kind of a coin flip in my opinion as to yeah. whether or not he gets a deal and then Severino and Valeka. Yeah, not happening. Probably not happening. All right. Gold glove conversations. We teased it. There are two guys on this 2021 Orioles roster that I could consider legitimately as gold glove caliber players that put forth gold glove caliber seasons. And that would be Cedric Mullins and Austin Hayes. Now we usually don't get an idea of when the gold glove nominees or finalists will be, announced they just kind of pick a day usually happens in the middle of the championship series so that's where we are now could happen in like an hour and this conversation could be outdated by the time you hear it but to me there are two guys Mullins and Hayes and Mullins would obviously be in center Hayes would be in the one of the corner spots he did play more left field than he did right field this year uh, let's start with Mullins because he gets the most hype around him defensively uh, and his Advanced metrics are great when it comes to everything, range, speed, leap, all that stuff, except for the arm. And to me, the arm could be the only thing that holds him back from being one of the three best D 
defensive center fielders in the American League. Yeah, there's also a lot of good defensive center fielders in the American League, which is working against him. But yeah, I mean, Cedric Mullins has unbelievable range. He has made some spectacular plays, so he's got kind of the flash factor if that plays into your Gold Glove nominees at all. But you're right, the the arm is... I don't want to say it's a liability because he gives you so many other things defensively in center field. Like he's just able to get to baseballs that most guys in the league are not able to get to. Yeah. But the arm is not a good center field arm. In fact, I would argue it's probably one of the worst arms uh, of center fielders in the American league. But because everything else is so good, he's still a gold club caliber center fielder. Yeah, the, the stats agree with you as well, Brendan. According to Fangraphs, he has negative one defensive run saved, and it's almost entirely due to the fact that his arm is rated as a negative five uh, outfield arms run saved. That's a stat that Fangraphs uses to determine how good this guy's arm is, and they use it to, you know, they, they base it based on guys trying to take extra bases and guys that are thrown out on the base paths, and that is rated as one of the worst in the American League. So you take that, and that's a pretty big hurdle to to clear. But if you can look past the arm, you see 11 outs above average, which is in the 96th percentile, according to StatCast. So he is getting, like you said, Brendan, he's getting to balls that other guys are not getting to. It's just getting the ball back into the infield when he needs to. Right. It, the, probably the biggest thing with Mullins is that if there's a fly ball to center and either a runner on second or a runner on third, he's probably not getting the runner at third or home, yeah. but he's getting to the baseball and he's making the out. So the trade-offs there with Cedric Mullins defensively, but still a very good defensive center fielder in general. Yeah, and the fact the Camden Yards outfield center field is perfect for him too because it's just, a you know, it is one of those center fields in baseball that you can legitimately rob a home run from. Not yes. everyone you can, but it, it, he is made for this kind of center field, uh, especially with the ground that he can cover. Uh, Austin Hayes, the other guy. Sneakily, he didn't get as much gold glove hype during the season as Cedric Mullins did, and understandably because Cedric Mullins has a tendency to make flashier plays, and he plays the more difficult defensive position in center. However, Hayes put forth a great defensive effort in left and in right, but in particular, if he were to get a gold glove nomination, it would come in left because he played 661 innings there compared to just 360 in right. And Fangraphs, I mentioned them not liking Cedric Mullins. They love Austin Hayes. Five defensive runs saved in left field, which is ninth in the American League, and 10 defensive runs saved in right field, which is fifth in the American League, which shows you that, you know, oftentimes you stick your worst outfield defender in right. So when Austin Hayes did have to play in right, he was so much better than all the other right fielders in the American League because he is better than a right fielder. He is a left fielder and honestly would be a great center fielder if he played that position. Well, exactly. This is what you get when you take a very good defensive center fielder and put him in an easier yeah. outfield spot. I mean, the Orioles are in a really good place defensively because next year, again, we'll talk more about Ryan McKenna. They could potentially have three center fielders patrolling the outfield between McKenna, Hayes, and Mullins. But Hayes is just an elite range guy in the corner outfields. And not unlike Cedric Mullins, he has a pretty good arm. Yeah. So Austin Hayes is probably... 
not probably, he is one of the better defensive corner outfielders in the league. The only reason I'm not sure whether or not he will get a nomination in left field is just because he hasn't played there as consistently as some of the other left fielders in the American League have because he split time between left and right. True, but working in his favor, less competition in left right. field. That is elite. Adolis Garcia, Brett Phillips, Randall Grichik, three guys that could be nominees, could be finalists considering the defensive efforts that they put forth in left field. Cedric Mullins, unfortunately, in center, has to face the likes of Michael A. Taylor, who is probably going to win it for the Royals. Yeah, because he's he been absurd. Incredible. Miles Straw, Kevin Kiermeyer, uh, Kike Hernandez. So, And that's not even counting probably the two best center fielders in the American League that were hurt most of the yeah. year in Byron Buxton and, and Mike, Mike Trout. Trout. Yeah, no question. So he, he has an uphill battle to climb. However, even if neither of these guys get nominated or, or receive finalist uh, for the American League, Gold Glove, both put forth great, great uh, defensive seasons. All right. Well, that, that kind of transitions us. You mentioned Ryan McKenna. Let's talk about what the Orioles outfield will look like for next year. And to me... You have a couple outside factors here. You have a guy by the name of Kyle Stowers who is flying up through the Orioles system. You have Colton Kowser who was recently taken with the number five overall pick. And you have Heston Kerstad who is a complete and utter wild card at this point. No fault of his own, just we don't know what, where he is going to be over the next coming months. When you look at the opening day 2022 outfield, however, none, none of those three guys factor into it. To me, it is this going to remain the same. Unless Santander is traded or non-tendered, you're looking at the same three guys in the outfield and Austin Hayes, Anthony Santander, and Cedric Mullins with the fourth outfielder being Ryan McKenna on opening day next year. Right. When we say, what will the 2022 outfield look like? We are essentially saying, what will right field look like? Because if things go according to plan and everybody stays healthy, Cedric Mullins is going to be your everyday center fielder. And Austin Hayes is probably going to be your everyday left fielder, unless for whatever reason, one of the prospects that the Orioles call up, or maybe they trade for some, I don't know unless somebody else needs to play left field and they can bump Austin Hayes over to right because he's just that versatile, Austin Hayes will be locking down one of the corner outfield spots if he remains healthy. So the question is just, how long is Anthony Santander going to hold on to that right field job if he even has it at all to open up the season? Because if he does not get tendered a contract, I think Ryan McKenna is probably your opening day right fielder. But I think you're right. As of right now, assuming that Santander gets that contract, I think it's Santander, Mullins, Hayes in the outfield, and then McKenna, your fourth as well. I don't really see Kyle Stowers breaking the opening day roster. I don't see Yusniel Diaz breaking the opening day roster. So I think it's Santander's job to try to hold on to throughout the season because there are going to be a lot of guys competing for that spot about halfway through. Yeah, like even though Stowers is not probably not going to make that opening day roster, you can't ignore what he did in 2021. I think he's pretty close to that opening day roster. He is, the fact that the Orioles bumped him up, they, they used him at three different levels in 2021, played the bulk of his season at Bowie, was outstanding, finished the season at AAA Norfolk, then got time in the Arizona Fall League and is also on the Fall Instructional Camp roster. To me, that says that they are fast-tracking him to the big leagues. Yeah. He's just 24 years old, and 
they love what they have in his power bat. They love what they have from him defensively. He can play all three defensive outfield spots. He's hopped past Yusniel Diaz in it, probably in the organization's eyes and at least from outsiders, you know, scouts' eyes. And to me, I, while he may not make the opening day roster, I put him in a similar category as Adley Rutschman where the organization feels good enough about him that they are going to make him an everyday starter at some point during the 2022 season. And I think it's going to happen sooner rather than later. Now, I know there is this service time argument to be made for a guy like Kyle Stowers where you don't want him to debut before you have that service time requirement met throughout the season. However, if you are Mike Elias and you are looking at your potential outfield for next year, Paul, I'll ask you this. Is there a chance, and how high do you think that chance is, that the Orioles decide to save the $3.7 million from non-tendering Anthony Santander, and they say, okay, opening day, we will roll with some combination of Kyle Stowers and Ryan McKenna in right field? I don't think you need to do that, because even if you, you've already made the decision hypothetically, that you're going to non-tender Santander, to me, you can have your cake and eat it too by putting Ryan McKenna in right field or in left field. And just for the first couple months, then bring Stowers up later in the season. That's true. So I I think that they're two separate conversations to have. I don't think the decision to tender or non-tender Anthony Santander has to do necessarily with you know, Stowers' readiness. I think that that is a conversation that you're going to have in May or June, depending on, you know, how Stowers' health, depending on how he's doing there. But it's a conversation that you're going to have to have at some point soon. Because when you're bringing Stowers up, I don't think they're going to do with Stowers what they did with McKenna, which was relegate McKenna to a fourth outfield spot, have him on the bus back and forth between Norfolk and Baltimore. I think when Stowers comes up, similar to Adley, I think he's going to get everyday reps in in probably right field. So in the in the case of Ryan McKenna, he's still only 24 years old. He has shown flashes of being an elite defensive corner outfielder. The bat was not fantastic last year, but it was unbelievable in AAA. So there is a lot of reason to believe that Ryan McKenna's bat is going to steadily improve at the major league level. He's shown some pop at times. How comfortable would you be, again, here's another question for you, how comfortable would you be non-tendering Anthony Santander and Kyle Stowers now out of the mix at the beginning of the year, just starting Ryan McKenna in right field? I mean, I'd be comfortable with it. The only thing is, are you really willing to let Santander walk away for nothing? With uh, so many teams right now, a lot of teams are looking for outfield help. I know the Marlins, their name keeps coming up in conversations of teams that really need outfield help. So... To me, it, it depends on the kind of offers we're not in the room that Michael Elias is getting for Anthony Santander. I'm sure right. he's worked the phone. So to me, if you can get a good enough offer or you think you can get a good enough offer for Anthony Santander, it's worth holding on to him for whatever he's going to cost in arbitration. But personally, I would feel fine starting with Kyle Stowers, or starting, excuse me, with Ryan McKenna in one of those outfield spots. Give him an opportunity to try to lock down a spot going forward. And like we said, at... His floor is could be a fourth outfielder. So to me, I, I think I would be comfortable with that. I don't know if the Orioles are willing to just 
let go of the investment that they've already made organizationally to Anthony Santander just so that you can give more playing time to Ryan McKenna. Right, and I don't really think that it's necessarily an argument of Ryan McKenna should get more playing time and that's why we should non-tender Anthony Santander. I think the argument there becomes, are you comfortable enough with Ryan McKenna as your replacement for Anthony Santander where you can take that $3.7 million that you are now saving and using it in free agency somewhere else. Right. That's the question to me, I think. The question becomes, would you rather have Ryan McKenna and a free agent or Anthony Santander? Well, and you in that scenario, if McKenna's a starter, you do still need a fourth outfielder. Right. You can fill that internally. I think Tyler Nevin's an interesting name to consider there, too, because Nevin, we saw, make his debut earlier in the season, I think June, came up for a couple of games, got his first big league hit, and then got sent back down to AAA. Did okay there, but then came back up at the end of the very end of the season in September when the Orioles were really needing depth guys. He can play a corner outfield. His primary position is probably first base, and I'm very intrigued by him. So you could go with a McKenna-Nevin combination, in theory, yeah. and, and let those two guys battle it out before Stowers arrives. That's a possibility as well. Yeah. Um, I, I'm intrigued, at least, by Nevin. Jorge Mateo can play outfield as well. I think he, they're probably not going to have him do that. Jemai Jones can play the outfield yeah. as well. I think they probably want them to continue to develop in the middle infield. And again, that's another another conversation. It's a lot of hypotheticals being thrown around. Like this is assuming that the Orioles would use the $3.7 million that they save by not paying Santander and put that directly into another free agent that they would be giving a contract. But I think you can make a legitimate case one way or another where you either gamble on Santander being tradable at yeah. some point in the offseason or during the year. And on the flip side, you can make the legitimate case that Ryan McKenna is good enough and has shown enough flashes to be an everyday outfielder. And at I least saw, for now. Yeah, and I saw a comment also about DJ Stewart and where he factors into this, and I don't think he does. He I think that uh, at this point, we've the Orioles have seen enough of DJ Stewart to know that he is not a everyday big league outfielder. He's, I think, turning 28 next season, and you already have enough guys who can only play a corner outfield spot or DH. He is bumped down the list in terms of priority. I wouldn't be terribly surprised if he's designated for free or designated for assignment, excuse me, this offseason. I think he will be on the on the bubble come final cutdown day uh, in late February or in late March. Yeah, I would be very surprised if DJ Stewart factors into this team at the beginning of the year. I think you would probably rather see Tyler Nevin. Yeah. I think you would probably even rather see guys like, I don't know, maybe Robert Newstrom makes his debut at some point this year. I think there are other corner outfield options that you, you would rather play than DJ Stewart. Probably use Neil Diaz. Diaz. Yeah. I mean, I know use Neil Diaz has struggled a lot. He had a 476 OPS in AAA this year. But Yusniel Diaz, at least you still haven't seen what he can give you at the major league level. I don't know if it's anything. Yeah. I don't know if Yusniel Diaz is going to be the player that the Orioles thought he would be when you got him in that Manny Machado deal. But DJ Stewart, you know what you're getting, and it is somebody who walks a lot, and that's... That's kind of the end of the list with the positives. Yeah, to me, Diaz is a, is the mystery box that it's at least worth opening. I mean, you right. you know what you have in DJ, and and uh, 
to me, he is not above any of the guys that we have mentioned here. So, Brendan, let's say you are currently in Mike Elias's office and you're trying to parse out. You've got all these names on the whiteboard and you're trying to parse out where the Orioles outfield will be and, and where it will go over the course of the 2022 season. What are you going to do? Are you going to are you going to tender Anthony Santander a contract and then when are these guys going to come up? Who is going to be your first call when somebody goes down with injury? How are all these guys going to fit in your outfield? I think personally, my decision is probably different than the decision that is going to get made. I think Anthony Santander is going to be tendered a contract. Okay. And I think he is going to be your opening day right fielder. If it were me, I would probably non-tender Anthony Santander and roll with Ryan McKenna as my starting right fielder. But then I'm also not in the position to say, well, I'm going to take that $3.7 million and I'm going to put it into a free agent. Because if, if I'm in Michael Eyster's shoes at this point, that is probably what I would do because I think that $3.7 million can be used to fill a larger hole on the team, such as a catcher, maybe a replacement for Pedro Severino if you are non-tendering him, or a starting pitcher, or a third baseman, or a middle infielder. I'd rather use that money for that, roll with Ryan McKenna starting in right field for a while, and then Kyle Stowers will get called up, and there will be some mix of Tyler Nevin, Kyle Stowers, Ryan McKenna, maybe use Neil Diaz. I am comfortable with that personally, and I would rather use $3.7 million elsewhere. I don't think that's what's going to happen. That's just what I would do. I understand the argument. Counterpoint to that, injuries happen, and I think that it leaves you a little thin. It leaves you very thin. That scenario leaves you very thin. And it also is looking at Anthony Santander as a total sunk cost. Yeah, I, personally, I just don't think we're going to see enough from Anthony Santander next year where he gets traded. I think I think this offseason, if I were Michael Elias, put myself in that shoes, $3.7 million doesn't break the bank. It doesn't. And I would probably tender that contract to him because if you view it from that pers- the perspective of we could be paying $3.7 million to get some kind of prospect, this whole rebuild's about getting prospects and getting future players. That's a worthwhile investment of that money to me. And I think that you tender him the contract, you flash forward a couple months, and once all of the chips have fallen in the free agency market and all of the outfielders, the big-time outfielders, has have signed somewhere you look at the musical chairs and you say which teams still need outfielders and you call those teams up guys go down with injuries it we we thought last year that the Orioles might deal Santander to the White Sox when Eloy Jimenez went down uh we you know the Marlins are still currently looking for outfielders they're probably not going to spend a whole lot of money in free agency maybe 3.7 million and a low-level prospect might get the job done for them Cleveland could be looking for a cheap outfielder and they might be looking to reunite with the guy that was taken from them in the Rule 5 draft. And if he starts out the year and he's not, he can't recapture the form, he looks sluggish in one of the corner outfield spots, Kyle Stowers is hitting really well in AAA, then you make that move. Because it, it, it's worth seeing if a team can trade for him, and if they can't, then if you aren't able to deal him, it's not a huge, huge burden. Right. And also, in an ideal world... That three and a half million, like whether you have it or not from Anthony Santander, 
ideally that should not change your free agency plans much because yeah. it's a three and a half million dollar deal that is not all that expensive. Right. So theoretically, you should be able to tender Anthony Santander a contract and then also use the same amount of money that you were planning on before in free agency. Right. Um, and then, so looking forward, so you, you start out, in, in, if I'm playing Michael Elias here, you start out the season with those three guys, Hayes, Mullen, Santander. I think Tyler Nevin is your first call if Trey Mancini or Santander or um, Ryan, McCa- or Ryan Mountcastle, excuse me, goes down because he can play first. He can play a corner outfield spot. And then I think you bring up Kyle Stowers and you bring him up to stay. And you figure out what you need to do with Santander. If he can't be moved, maybe you make him... I don't know, but you know, if if there are other injuries elsewhere, I was going to say DH, but you already need that spot for Mancini. You already need that spot for Mountcastle. So I think you you if he you might have to cut bait with him at that point. Yeah, that's the tricky part of the Santander situation, which is at the beginning of the year, if you don't have him, you're probably too thin. Yeah, and in the middle of the year, if you are calling up Kyle Stowers you probably have too many outfielders because you want to keep Ryan McKenna as the fourth and Anthony Santander is what? Your fifth option? Yeah, and and you do want to see what you have in Diaz and you want to see what you have in Robert Newstrom, who is 25, 26, 25, I believe. So those are two guys that could factor into this as well and and injuries will probably answer a lot of the questions that we have now. We were asking these questions a year ago and then injuries happened. Yusniel Diaz had a down season. So it will sort itself out but there are a couple paths here for Michael Elias, and he's got to decide how much he values Anthony Santander, and he's the one who's receiving and making trade calls right now. We're not. So we don't know yeah. what offers are on the table. He's got to decide if there are worthwhile enough offers to tender Santander. I completely agree with you on the Kyle Stowers front, where I think once he gets promoted, hopefully if he gets promoted this year, he should be your everyday right fielder. Ryan McKenna is probably going to start the year as your fourth outfielder. And I think even if and when Kyle Stowers gets promoted, I think Ryan McKenna should stay as your fourth outfielder ahead of Anthony Santander if you are bumping Santander out of the lineup. Because what you want out of a fourth outfielder is exactly what Ryan McKenna gives you, which is a lot of defensive versatility. And I wouldn't say elite so far. It's a jump in the gun a little bit. But I think a very good defender in all three outfield spots yes. so he is the ideal fourth outfielder for the Orioles this year and then Anthony Santander if he stays I suppose you keep him in a DH occasional outfield role yeah but hey in an ideal world maybe he gets dealt at the deadline and the Orioles get something good for him. it's like our conversation with Renato Nunez about Renato Nunez a year ago where it's it's if there is somebody occupying a DH spot it's hard to find a role for him. Right. And there are a lot of guys that will fit that spot. And they're going to need as many <laughs> roster spots as they can get. Uh, interestingly enough, they will need as many 40-man roster spots as they can get. And we will talk about in future podcasts as well who the Orioles need to add to the 40-man roster. They have a ton, a ton of guys that they need to, that you could make a case they should add, which means they need to clear guys off their 40-man roster in order to fit these guys and protect them from the Rule 5 draft. That, I think the Rule 5, or excuse me, the deadline to add guys before the Rule 5 draft is exactly a month from today. So we will, over the course of the next few weeks, have those conversations. Next week, we're going to begin in earnest our free agency preview. 
So we're going to lay out the Orioles' priorities, their needs, and how much money is at their disposal. And then two weeks from now, we're looking at the first ever free agency bracket, Brendan. Who will the Orioles sign? Who might they sign? Who are all the candidates? We're going to narrow it down, March Madness style, to one guy. And he will be the official Mass and All Access podcast free agent. And then he won't get signed. It'll be really sad. He won't get signed, yeah. Uh, Because Michael Eyes will hear it. And just despite us, won't even pick up the phone. Yeah. Um, All right. That just about does it for our show today. Thanks to Bobby Blanco for producing as always. We will be back next week at Brendan Morty is his Twitter handle. I am at Paul Mancano. Of course, you can hear the podcast on all of your favorite podcast platforms. And if you're not watching, you should be on YouTube and Facebook live with us on the Masson Orioles YouTube and Facebook pages. Brendan Mortensen, I'm Paul Mancano. Thanks so much for tuning in. We will be back in a week.